This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Jason Morrison from Channel 7. Jason has been working in Sydney media for close to 30 years, firstly as a reporter with 2GB, 2UE and 2WS, then as a presenter with 2SM, 2GB and 2UE. He's also worked in TV for Channel 10 and now for Channel 7 as its Director of News. He chats about his fascination for radio, his regret over the reporting of the death of Michael Hutchins, getting sacked by 2UE and how to bring the magic back to radio news. I first met Jason on my first day of work experience 22 years ago and as someone I have admired ever since. It's a long chat, but being the 50th episode of this podcast, I wanted to bring someone passionate and inspiring to the table. As someone who's widely regarded as the best radio reporter of his generation, Jason is certainly all of that. I really hope you enjoy this chat. Jason Morrison, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. I'm so nervous. You know, I haven't been in front of a microphone for about two years. <laughs> and the, the worst topic is a topic about yourself. So I'm actually genuinely nervous. Anxious is probably a better way of putting it. I think you'll manage. <laughs> We're here at the Western Hotel, lovely surroundings, just down the road from Channel 7 where you work and have done for just over a year now as the Director of News. How's all that going? Great. It's a fantastic job. I, I, I was always a newsroom person and I love the news industry and, and love being a part of the bigness of it, and and at Channel Seven, it's big. I mean, you, we have the staff to be able to do anything. We have the capabilities to be able to do anything, and 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 I have the honour of being in charge of it and its direction. It's a, it's an amazing job, and I um every day I drive in there and just kind of think that it's it's dream come true stuff. It's it's brilliant. What's it like steering a ship like that? You mentioned the enormity of it mm. to be the sort of driving force. When you sort of go into the office each day, you mentioned it, it's dream come true kind of stuff. What is it exactly that you enjoy most about the job? It's seeing it's about 130 people involved in the news each night. Um, you know, you, the viewer sees the reader, the reporters, and that's kind of it. But behind the scenes is huge. And to be able to get all these people going in the one direction and achieving this outcome and, and I, a bloody good outcome, and then knowing that, you know, we're taking a product that, um, you know, had been struggling a bit and we're making it better and better and better and, and it's rating very, very well is, is, is great. I mean, I, um, I, I'm always impressed at what people can achieve and I love being a part of helping people achieve the best and, and, and that they can. Uh, and then we've got, you know, we've got that going on at Channel 7 and on a grand scale, it's it's a real challenge. And I, I go home each day. I always try to be the last person out the door because, you know, then you – it's not a principal thing. It's just it's good to be able to be the last person out the door knowing that, you know, all these people today have done this great thing and it's done now. See you later. Back tomorrow. Now, you've made a couple of significant sort of signings, I guess, in the time that you've been there in, on the, the front end in, in Michael Usher and Melanie McLaughlin. That must be – a sense of satisfaction for you to knowing that the 
professionals have just seemingly just fit right in. And they they have had a huge impact and they've revitalised the product. I mean, we had I'm, – I'm lucky. I, I inherited the newsroom from a guy who had run it very well for a, a long time. He gave me some fantastic staff and – and then I had Mark hosting, Mark Ferguson hosting it, and you know, there's no better. And then I've got now people that are kind of coming in behind Mark that are giving our product greater strength. I mean, it's it, it is a lot like radio in the sense that it's it's a team thing. It's not just about individuals, and and it it's great to be able to uh, you know be a part of that. But you know, Mel is an exceptional sports journalist and she's a, an amazing interviewer and and I think you know her her presence not being on the big bash cricket this this season you know people can kind of see the impact she had on that sport and now she works for us she's been involved in the tennis which has been hugely successful I mean the tennis has just had its biggest audience I think it's had in a decade um, you know, these are all. I mean, this is not her. This is just part of the thing she's part of. But she's great at it. And and then you know you've got Michael Usher, and you know you struggle to find anyone that can do what he has done in this business in his time. He's he's an amazing uh, reporter and and a and a really decent guy. And then you know Mark Ferguson, who's I've known since I started in the game, and is a real kind of you know rags to riches sort of story in the news business. I mean, he started as, you know, like everyone did as a beginner and worked his way up through it, started in the country and came to the big smoke and worked his way around Channel 9 and then came to 7 and worked his way up. So, you know, it's it's an amazing team. And then um, I think our secret weapon, though, is our meteorologist. We have we have a genuine meteorologist doing the weather. Not many people do these That's days. That's right. No one does. We have a genuine meteorologist. You know, he's... He knows his stuff. If he was here, we'd be talking about the weather. Now it would go for two hours. He loves the weather and he he's genuinely gets it. It's Anyway, we didn't come in to talk about my staff. As, <laughs> as, as much as I'd like to talk about Hector Pascals, we'll yes. give that a, uh, a wide berth. Let's go back for you, for where it all sort of began, knowing you as I do and have done for a, for a long time. Media was always going to be the career path for you, wasn't it, generally? Was that accident? Um, I... Studied engineering at at university. Notice I say studied. I didn't finish it, but it sounds like I did when I say studied. Yeah, yeah. I studied engineering. I wanted to be an electrical engineer, but it was because I was interested in radio. Yeah, and and I still find it. You know, it's miracles and wonder that you can we can be where we are and we can send a signal across the room through through the air and no one really knows how it gets there. We kind of know how to make it get there, but the magic of how it happens. I was captivated by that from a pretty young age. And then, you know, you, I found myself into it. I always was in love with the radio because I, I just... Why? It's incredible. I mean, you, you know, here we are talking, you know, I imagine people listen to us in headphones or on speakers on computers when they listen to this program. But, you know, I'm, I'm millimetres away from their ear having a conversation with them. And it is amazing. And, and, and yet to be able to be, you know, on the other side of the planet and for the signal to bounce around the world and to get to you is, is it's a miraculous thing. And, and, and that I got to be on it was the most flattering thing that could happen. But at the same time, um, that just to work in it is enough for me to be a part of, you know, 
the, the miracle of getting a radio signal to someone and making it entertaining is 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 great. And you know, I often hear people put together these lists about you know mankind's greatest achievements and whatever else. If 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 transmitting through thin air is not up there, I don't know what is. It's one of the most incredible things, and and to be paid to do it is even better. And you know, I, I love listening to it. Uh, to be a part of it is just a bonus. So that fascination with the engineering side of things. How was the how were the dots joined for you to then get involved in broadcast? I mean, obviously, you were. Uh, as you said, a, a great listener to radio, but then everybody's got a unique path and how they get yeah. into this game. What was yours? I was at uni, so we're talking 89. I got involved with a local community station, Brown Hornsby, where I grew up. I, because I was an engineering-minded person and I was a bit geeky and could put things together and make them work, um, I built a studio. I Build a transmission site. I did all these things, and, and the things I did for, for hobby. I do that. I mean, I sadly say that I do it now. I, I love that part of it. But to 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 be involved in that community station suddenly started opening a door, and I kind of felt that you know this elusive um, broadcast world that I'd only ever really been a listener to. I realised it's quite a small industry that, you know, once you meet one person, you meet another person, and before you know it, you know 10 people in it, and then it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And then one day um, I met Grant Goldman, and Grant was working midnight to dawn at 2GB. Right. Um, you know, with this amazing voice. And I had known this amazing voice man, you know, not as a personality but as the voice. I met the guy. He got me in the door at 2GB. I was doing a little bit of work for, for a private company that he was – so he was broadcaster who used to, you know, use the studios to put some private stuff together. And I, Because I was technically capable, I was doing some stuff for him. And suddenly I'm working as a shit kicker at 2GB. I was, you know, telephonist or I was uh, – card operator or as a panel operator and, and you know, and the, you, you get this and I, anyone in radio gets this. I mean, there was a certain magic in the room in a, in a radio studio when you first walk into it and I just remember it was like I was being hit with something when I walked in the front door of of this, the main studio in the crappy old 2GB Sussex Street building, Studio 3, and the the desk used to light up on air. It had the words on air on it, which in the analogue days was pretty impressive. And I looked at that and I thought, and it felt warm and it felt kind of, you know, it was it was exciting. And, and I thought, I, got, I, I just fell in love with it. I couldn't, I thought I got to work in this place with its tobacco stains on the roof and, <laughs> and, it's, and it's asbestos falling through the ceiling and everything like that. I, I just thought I've got to, got to be here. So, I mean, my entry to it was, um, you know, as a kind of technical bloke who got a break and then got a little bit of confidence and found myself, before I knew it, working down in the newsroom. So who were the great names that were around at that stage? You mentioned Grant Goldman was your entry point to it. Who else was there at that time at 2GB that was sort of you looked at and you just, again, marvelled at what they were actually able to do? Yeah, no particular order, but Grant was working mid-dawns at the time. John Pearce was doing Saturday and Sundays, and um, we'll talk about him in a sec because he's, he's a pretty incredible bloke. Um, Brian Wilshire was there and Brian was one of the few people, it didn't matter what level 
if you get what I'm getting at, I was in the business, whether yep. I was the shit kicker or the breakfast host. Brian treated me exactly the same all the way through. He's one of, one of the most decent blokes I came across. And a lot of people have a, a view about Brian because they've, they've heard things about him or they've listened to his show or whatever else. I found a decent bloke who was encouraging, who, who, who was easy to get along with and taught me heaps about it. And what makes it worse is that I had listened to him since I was a little kid because we always had the station on 2GB and I'd grown up listening to this guy. So I sort of knew him before I knew him. Yes. And then to, you know, I mean, he was at my wedding. That's Brian is an important man to me in my life. And, and, and so I, you know, Brian was there. Um, uh, we, uh, Carlton had just left. Michael Carlton had just left. Um, and 2GB was, was going down the sink. Um, we had, uh, Laws had Laws had recently left the station, you know, in a few years. Uh, Stephen O'Doherty was there, another amazing broadcaster uh, who I, I, I learned a lot from and got to work with. And John Tingle was there and Clive Robertson was there. So it was, it was I mean, to me it was the, the halcyon days of 2GB, but it wasn't. It was actually some of its darkest days. No, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We weren't oh, yeah. raiding, uh, the, the money wasn't coming in the door, the station lived off Contra because that was about the only way you could sell the spots at the time. But, of course, for a 20-something-year-old, that didn't 19 matter. year old it didn't matter because I was in the door of the grandest radio station on the dial, in my mind it was, and I had, you know, you could do anything. I mean, I could walk down to the newsroom. They didn't have enough staff. I'd say, oh, oh, can I cover a press conference? Yeah, mate, shit, out you go. Go for your life. And then, uh, you know, someone's sick. Do, do you want to work the news shift? Yeah, I'm not a journalist, but I, I can work the news shift. And, um, and then eventually it came about that, you know, gee, um, we need someone to do – Saturday afternoon, uh, just to sort of tell the time and temperature around, you know, Ida Butros. Can you do that? And that was, I mean, they were the sort of things that happened. It was just an amazing place. It was, it was like a playground that never stopped because there was always an opportunity there. And I, I was there at the right time, really. I mean, all the senior people were being laid off and, you know, I exploited it, I guess. How important was that for you in your development to, I guess, be given? free reign of the place, the fact that you were this young, enthusiastic kid that was willing to do just about anything at that point? It was great because it taught me to do everything, you know, except sell the station. I did everything uh, from carting the ads to cleaning the tape heads to (laughs) telling the time (laughs) to, you know, patching up the studios to vacuuming the studios. I just had to do that once too. Um, it was it was incredible. And it, it was someone said to me, I've told this story to other people, because you always get the there's a little bit of snobbishness associated with, oh well mate, you never did the hard yards out in the bush, so you don't know what it's really like. I, I didn't do the hard yards out in the bush. I can see that. I didn't well I got the break in the great broadcasting station of 2GB that was at its lowest, shittiest level in its history. And I got to, to learn all the things that you get to learn in the bush um, and uh, and it, it, it was with from some of the best and that was you know that was one of the one of the great things but I think uh, it did teach me uh, at the time that if you love the radio business there's actually no job that's sort of too low you know just to be in there. And so I'm not in anymore. And I haven't been in radio for three years since I got sacked from the worst radio station on the dial, which I'm sure we can talk about later on. But the 
I, 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 I'm envious of people who, who get to do it because it's a great job. It really is a great job. I love what well, I it's do. It's not really a job. Like if you it, love it that much, it that's the way I kind of have yeah. always approached it as well. It's just like they're paying you to turn up to do this stuff. What? I do it for free. Well, you quickly get over that, but do you know what I you mean? You get over that very quickly, <laughs> <laughs> especially, when, especially when you start to get paid phone numbers, which, which happens at some stage in your, in your career. So just going in there and, and doing all those things, and it's, as you mentioned before, the days before the current digital technology, which makes things easier. Did it make you appreciate the fact that you had to do everything on reel-to-reel and carts and all of those old-school radio um, equipment, um, and you had to master that, which was a skill in itself? Yeah, it's I would call it fair income radio, yeah. you know, with, with, totally. when, when it's not all done from the one screen. Um, yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, it, that said, look, I, I get all halcyon about the great old, oh, the great old days. But the, frankly, you know, I'm looking at you with a tiny little recorder oh, no. that automatically sets your levels, that you know, um, will give you the reproduction quality that was never achieved in that era. So let's not crap on too much about the halcyon days. The current era, wherein though lacking in certain dimensions, the technology is amazing. Let's talk about that that career and the fascination that you got a taste of the newsroom. So is that something that clicked and then you thought, right, I want to report on the news and I want to be that guy that has the information first before anybody else that gets to tell the greater listening audience? Because I still consider that to be one of the great privileges that you have incredible. in radio. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, when I... It, the the uh, Granville train disaster. I, I mean, okay, we're back what seventy seven, forty years ago. There was a bloke that covered that. Now I was a little kid when it happened, so I have no recollection of this originally going to air. But there was a bloke that covered it for two UE called Paul Macon, and Paul Macon these days works for Channel Seven in Adelaide, and he's a TV reporter. But Paul Macon, if you ever hear the the, the clip of his report, it is one of the greatest broadcasts I've ever heard. It's a bloke who showed up and, you know, wore his heart on his sleeve and talked about the humanity of the horror of what he was seeing in front of him. The broadcast, talking about it, I even get kind of a bit caught in the moment. Um, years later, I'm in high school. Um, we had, you know, they always have like a media studies, yeah. you know, unit. lobe unit, you know, in a, in a, and they played a tape of this guy's broadcast. So we're talking, it would have been probably 10 years after it. So I knew the story, but I'd never heard the broadcast. And I heard this amazing thing. And I, I remember listening to it. And it was, you know, I mean, like year 10 or something at school. And, and you get almost teary hearing it. It's amazing. Yeah. And I heard that. I thought, Jesus, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be able to go to some scene and and hopefully not a devastating scene, but some scene and be able to talk the person who's not there at the end of the the, 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 the line listening to the, to the broadcast and describe it with that kind of perfection and convey the emotion and the shock and the horror of it and, 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 and the incredible images that are going on and all these things, I'd love to be able to do that. And so I used to always listen to these radio reporters with a great deal of awe because there were some amazing people that I grew up listening to um, – Patrick Burns, who I actually now work with uh, again, but Patrick was one who was a great conveyor of the magic 
David Allender, who is uh, was at TUE at the time, Robert Kenny, who I think was probably one of the finest ones I ever got to work with. Um, and these guys had that gift to be able to see it and live say it and talk me through it and help form the image, the picture, I mean, the word picture. And I hate the cliche theatre of the mind, but they had that amazing ability to be able to take you there, describe the, the what was going on, convey the emotion somehow in their voice and deliver you useful information. And I thought, that is a skill. And and I was, always wanted to do that. And so the fact that I'd already got in the door at 2GB, the newsroom was where I wanted to be because I wanted to be like one of those guys. And and I learnt to try to be in their league by basically listening to them and picking up their t- their, their their tricks and you know their the ways they do it and and I won't say mimicking it but I mean that was sort of how I taught myself to do the news. So who were those guys that taught you in those very early and formative years of your broadcast career? I listened to a lot. I, I might not have worked with them, but I listened to it. I stole all their ideas, and I, and I, I no such of, thing as a new idea. Yeah, that's right, I, and, and and their ways, and I'm sure they probably pinched it from other people too. And the ways they did it, and the pace they delivered, and the words they used, and and um, the methods and means, and and uh, you know, I mentioned a few of them then. I mean, I, um, uh, Rob Kinney is is one of the best um, I've heard. Um, the uh, there's there's you know, they're, they're, but I had, I had great staff that the news directors that let that happen. Like I worked for Russell Powell, who was incredible at 2GB, um, and Alan Baskin, who similarly let me go. And he, I think he realised like this this idiot will come in here and do it for nothing. So if he wants to work 20 hours, let him. He he, he didn't even, you know he didn't pull the handbrake up on me. I got a job at 2WS. I worked for Steve Blander, who. Is I, I, I always think I always say Steve is quite a misunderstood person because people think he's just a great newsreader. That's what he ended up doing. He was a fantastic reporter. He never got he never gets enough credit for that. He's a great reporter and a great practitioner of it. And I found him to be a fantastic bloke because he I was a, you know I'm in my early twenties. I kind of decided I was brilliant in my early twenties. And and rather than you know clip the wings, Steve let me go for it. You know, and he, he, I flew into a few windscreens along the way, but he, he let me go for it. And, and I always I have great respect for that. And, you know, and then I've always thought that's, you know, when I ever end up in charge of anything, that's what I have to do too. Do what do to the people who I see have that skill and that talent and let them go and let them create the magic of radio. Because, I mean, frankly, the airwaves are dull sometimes. And, you know, news reporting has become a little bit cookie cutter. And there's not enough of that magic anymore. Uh, that 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 you know the listener says to someone, "Did you just hear that? Wow!" You know, I challenge people to say, "When was the last time you had that experience um, listening to radio news?" There's no criticism of the guys today because I don't think anyone's teaching them to do it. But I think it is a problem that you know the skill has gone, the music has died a bit, and and it needs to come back because. You know, it is one of the most amazing talents to be able to see it, say it, and take you there emotionally. One of your great strengths coming through and still to this day, I think personally, is your work ethic in Hmm. terms of being the guy that is always listening to radio or always sourcing out a story or was the guy that was 
in at the station at 6am and then you'd come back in at 10 o'clock at night. Where does that come from? Where does that... I love it. Just uh, uh, that that ability to just always be consumed by everything that you, you do. Well, I love it. It's it's um it's not work. Yeah, yeah people. Yeah, oh, geez, I've worked long hours. I've dragged. I'm rich. Well, no, th- those people that sell you their 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 work day. I mean, they tell you how hard they work. Well, you know, anyone could do that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's more about being for other people to comment on it. I wouldn't want to not be there if it's yeah, if it's yeah. if it's going on. I wouldn't want to not be there, and. I can think of a handful of stories that are huge that I've missed because I've been on holidays or because the girlfriend at the time was you took You, to... took, you take holidays? <laughs> I've never seen it. I was forced a few times. Um, <laughs> I, I remember I, uh, I went out with a lady for a while and she she basically had the shits with the fact that I was always like that. I understand it totally, but, you know, um, and I went away on holidays and it basically was one of those agreed, you're not going to have your pager going off, you're not going to have your mobile phone. And I missed a huge story, and I, I still—I think I still have deep down resentment that I didn't get to go. I mean, we're not together anymore, so I. I but it's one of these things that I—I I wouldn't want to not be there. So, does that come from your family? Does it come from where does that particular, uh, not win at all costs, but like be available at all costs, work? I'm frame greed, of mind I'm come greedy. from? I'm greedy. I don't want to give anyone else a go. I don't know, mate. I, I do, it's. Mum and dad are hardworking people, but family's always mattered the most, and and that's you know if I can be a fraction of that, that'll be good. Um, it'll be hard to wean myself off the the kind of self indulgence of always wanting to be at the coal seam when it's happening. But no, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just wait, we're witnessing history. These things that happen. I mean, they might be small parts of history. It's a moment in time, but they are history. And and there's being a radio reporter. I always say this to these young kids who, you know get annoyed about the fact that they're working at three o'clock in the morning and they've been doing it for three months now. Oh, it's shocking. You know, you, you get a front row to this. You get a front row to this job, uh, to, to what's going on. You get to brush shoulders with people that everyone else just knows. You know, it's an amazing job and you, you're you're almost a part of it. And, and um, Not everybody has that mindset or that desire or that drive, though. Are they in the wrong game? Because <laughs> you want to, like you said. Often, you, yes. Yeah. Often yes. You want to be you want to be part of that moment, even if you've worked that twelve hour day. Mm-hmm. If something happens one minute past that twelfth hour, you want to be there for the next four oh. or five hours. Like, and I'm mate, I know that you've done it right. gazillion times. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking, I, this would be a great broadcast if I could sit here and name names. All the people who went home when the big one happened, I will never forget. Or people that complain about the, f- the fact that oh no, this has just happened. It's a massive story, and they don't want to be part of it. Like I'm like you. I, I don't understand it. In the early 90s, Bob Hawke called a snap election. It was one of these things that, you know, it was like a beautiful sunny day and no one was expecting it. And then all of a sudden, I, up the news line from, from Canberra comes, you know, Canberra to station, Stephen Spencer or someone it was, uh, Canberra to stations, um, we've just heard the Prime Minister's gone to Yarralumla and there'll be a press conference shortly. There's been an election called. No one had even thought it was going to happen. It was huge. And I remember it happened mid-afternoon and the person who was the breakfast person went home at 2 o'clock and they just went. And I, I, I wish I could say who it was. because, <laughs> But it, I looked and I thought, you're kidding. This is, what, this is what you live for in this game. You live for the moment and they're going. And I, you asked me the question, are you in the wrong game? If you can walk away from a big thing, think you are. I guess we've all got 
we've all got family things and obligations and appointments and everything like that. But if you walk away from the big moment, I given real serious considerations why you're doing this because I mean. Uh, I won't be as arrogant as to say that this is a kind of a vocation, this job. It is. But you've got a front row to history and you prefer prefer to let someone else tell you about it and you're in oh, – I, I, don't, I don't get it. I, so I, I can't, I can't whole, even deconstruct it. That whole thing with the, the scanners at home and all of those things <laughs> that, you were, that you were just so consumed by the news or the news before it was about to become news – I mean, like oh, I said, I've well, been, sort of been doing this for 20-odd years and I I haven't seen anyone quite as... Really? As consumed as you. No, no, no. no I, I, well, maybe I'm a bit odd. <laughs> so, I, mean, I just, I don't know, maybe that's it. I, no, I don't think you're... You know, you know, you know, I'm a competitive person. I'm not I'm not good enough to just naturally win. I've got to, I've got to try hard to do it. So, yeah, I, I'm... Yeah, I don't know. I just... I can't explain it. What about being given that opportunity to do those things that you that you wanted wanted to do and be part of what was an in, an institution in the two GB newsroom, working with all those great people that that you worked with and putting in the the long hours, like we discussed before. You never really saw it as a job. You saw it as something that was part of history. Yeah. Getting to that point where you're able to do it and do it well, how long do you think that that actually took you to feel confident in your own skin that you could be at a media conference, you could even go to a story that wasn't yet a story? I know, I know where you're going. I, I, uh, it, I can't I, – I, I never really did it so well that it came naturally, if that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think what did happen is that um, – you get to the point where you can be quite comfortable doing the job, and whenever that happened, I knew it was time to turn it up because um, there have always been far better reporters than I, and I always aspired to be as good as them or better than them. And so, you know, it, it, it's one of these things. I, I think the um, the thing, probably the greatest challenge, you know, for anyone coming into it is the moment it ceases to give you the adrenaline hit, and that and that the adrenaline starts doing some of the talking and whatever. I think that's when it's probably time to, to look around and find something else to do. And I had to eventually. I mean, I, I did. I, I lost the kick. And I remember the the Sydney Olympics. I mean, this was a huge, huge event. And, and it bored me because it, you know, just it bored me a bit. And I thought, oh, that's probably about the end of my run on this. And I, I pretty much from that point started to have ambitions to do something else in the broadcasting business that wasn't being a on the road reporter. I mean, I'd done my ten or eleven years, you know, of of that. And and when you can't get excited by the Sydney Olympics, you know, you're probably in, you know, the wrong job. Well, before we talk about losing your mojo and heading into <laughs> other areas, mojo, that's it. Let's um, talk about a couple of the or a few of the more memorable events that you covered when you were a reporter. When I say Port Arthur, what does that bring for you in terms of memories and also what you were able to deliver? Well, it was a hideous story. Um, And it was this – I still – I've been down there a couple of times since, you know, just as a tourist and I still can't – I can't convert in my head what – what 
what we saw and the information we found out about from uh, from the court case and the, the the horrors those people went through uh, by the hands of that bastard, I actually find it hard to convert that it happened here. So it's just a bit surreal. It's a bit movie like. Um, that that was that was horrific. Um, the funnily enough, the the worst, but I, this is not the worst thing I covered. Like it probably is worse in terms of human toll things. Yeah. But worst things I covered were 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 smaller things. Like they were, I don't want to make people sick talking about it. But there were there were there's images sticking here. Like there's a there was a, a garbage truck that rolled over a car of five people in it that happened near West Pimble, and I knew. I, I knew the area, but I didn't know the people. And I remember looking at it and thinking it was just this image that's never left me. And and I, things happen often, and that I get a recurring kind of mm. flashback to that. That was horrific because I always think, you know, these people were sitting at the lights, and suddenly, whammo, bang, they were gone. Mm. And 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 there were things I saw that day which you should never see. Um, the the Victoria bushfires, I. Um, as reporters tend to do, when they're told they're not allowed in somewhere, they find a way to get in. I stupidly drove around the, uh, the the containment lines the police set up to keep people out of King Lake and other places like that and drove down a street where there was car after car after car with people that had been beyond recognition in it. And I was probably one of the few people who actually saw it, apart from police officers, in the horrific state that it was. That's hard to kind of leave behind. Um, Black Hawk tragedy up in sort of the forgotten Australian wartime, non-wartime tragedy that happened up in North Queensland where you know, two Black Hawks with some of our finest soldiers crashed together and there were a lot of men killed and that's a pretty raw, ugly crime scene that was. Um, and, uh, and the Threadbow thing. Oh, that was going to be next on my list. Yeah. I mean, that, again, another unique... Story that a whole lot of things happened between about ninety five and ninety seven. A whole lot of really horrific things happened in Australia and around the world. I mean, add to the equation Princess Diana dying. Add to the equation um, a government of you know. I don't think it's horrific, by the way. It was a fantastic thing that happened in ninety six when John Howard was elected. Yes. But you'd expect me to say that. But I mean, Australia went from having you know the same rule that it had for a decade to suddenly having a brand new bloke in charge and that happened. It was a was a huge moment. And to be in the news industry, it, it was it never stopped. Um, and then, of course, you had the, the horrors of the Port Arthur thing, the horrific Now, there disaster. was a story about you getting on a plane, I think, from memory to get down there to, to, to Port oh, yeah. Arthur at, the, at that particular um, yeah, stage well, as well. Like I, I mean, you've used a you've used a lot of guile and a lot of street smarts to get <laughs> to places that other people couldn't get to, and yeah. that just doesn't come. Not everybody does that kind of stuff. Not everybody has that same thirst this and will, quest for the story. This will sound cliche, but it used to be that no one got between me and it. No one got between me and it. If the story, and it wasn't like I'm not one of these kind of crusader facts guys. I was, I actually was like, if I had to go over there so I could tell people what was going on, I had to go over there. I'm sorry, I appreciate you've got a job to do by telling me, but I've go over there, so sorry. And it, it's a, it's a stupid arrogance, and I don't have it in any other part of my life. But if someone says you can't go somewhere, um, and and I need to go there, I, it's I'm sorry, <laughs> it's, it doesn't work like that. Um, other than that, I'm a reasonably decent person, <laughs> but I'm sure there's a whole lot of police officers and security guards or whatever that just think I'm an asshole because of. But oh no! But I think that that goes a long way of explaining the person that you are and the 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 lengths that you are willing to go to to 
get the story so that you could convey the message to be that guy that was delivering the message that was part of history. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, you make it sound noble. <laughs> so, uh, I'm doing my best. Yeah, to- no, no, you, you, uh, thank you. I'm sorry, I hope this is not boring because, I mean, I, I don't think about this stuff very often, So, uh, but um, it's just what you do. Look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky I've got a room full of reporters up at Channel 7 and they do that every day. And yeah, so it doesn't, to me, it's not a skill, it's what you do. It's what you've got to do, and um, especially these days, there's a whole army of people out there that want you to not be able to tell people what's going on, and I think you've got to really fight hard often to do it. And, you know, in the news business, we have an obligation to our listener or our viewer to be able to ensure that they get the best and the purest form of information. And, you know, in, in these times when there are so many ways people can get information, I want to be able to put my arm around the most of it, bring it to people, and, you know, if it means sometimes being objectionable to get past the, the point, you've got to do it. But um, with Port Arthur, I wasn't first in. Um, I, was, I was some time behind it, but, you know, uh, there, there, was some, there were some amazing people who covered that story. And uh, back to Robert Kenny. I mean, Robert Kenny uh, was in, in there well before I was, and, um, and he, you know, I drove down to the Tasman Peninsula listening to Rob telling me what had happened, you know, and so I, 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 you know, I didn't need to watch the TV to hear it because I had the, the, the maestro there telling me how it, had to do, how, how it looked. And then we look at a story such as Threadbow. Hmm. What was that like for you to, to cover as well? That was awful. Um, it was awful because pretty much every person that died was probably in their sleep when it happened. So to use that phrase, they didn't know what hit them. They, they didn't. They were, they were uh, if they survived, they had, they had an awful way out. Um, if, if they didn't, they never knew. Um, I know these are silly things to say, but I think about it a bit. And, you know, they weren't all holidayers, but some of them were. Um, they were, there's nothing worse than people, you know, things happening in, Places that are meant to be happy places. I always thought Threadbow. No, I can't stand the bloody snow and the cold and everything like. But it's meant to be a happy place. Yes. And I think it turned the happy place into something that it's kind of got a cloud over it now. And 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 it was it was awful. And of course, we went down there and we'd written everyone off. And then this miracle happened, and this bloke survived. And uh, I was talking about this just the other day to to Glenn Daniel. um, Yes. And Glenn and I were talking about the Threadbow story, and I. Remember the phone call? It was at about five fifty in the morning um, from a police contact of mine who was working on the hill, and, and I was asleep. Now you were at WS at that oh, stage. Two GB, two WS. They were the yeah. same newsroom. There. Yeah, yeah. And um, this bloke rang me, and it was three days after the the slip had happened. So everyone was dead, really, you know, in their minds, and they'd written them all off the night before, pretty much. I think they'd said there's no survivors. And then you get this phone call to say, you're not going to believe us, mate, we've found one. And I thought it was so beyond belief that I thought it was bullshit. And I, I just said, are you for real? He said, look, 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 look out the window, look, look, look. And I open up and sure enough, there's flashlights going all over the, the, the hillside and, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of commotion going on on top of the debris that was the slippage. And... Had the scanners there, and I'm listening to them talking to each other, and I could hear glee in people's voices and excitement and energy. And uh, you know, this is ten minutes before airtime at six o'clock. And um, I remember I rang the newsroom. I think David Spears or Mark Douglas answered the phone. I can't remember who it was. Uh, and I said, 
uh, guys, you've got to get me up. This is huge. They found a guy. He's alive. And, uh, and whoever it was, it was either Spearsy or, or, or Douglas. They, so I'll pretty much straight on. And I went live on the network, you know. I remember the words, you know, a miracle has happened here. Cause that's how I thought it was a yeah. miracle. A miracle has happened here. They've found a guy down there. And it, um, I listened to it and it's probably one of my, and it's, it's not really a great thing I did, but it was probably the finest moments because I thought I, I felt I listened to it and I can hear the real me because I was just wow. And then, of course, we had the day that went on and um, was ultimately left to um, a guy, Nigel Blunden, who you I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Nigel Blunden um, called him out of the hole pretty much. You, um, you oh. talked about amazing moments in time and the, the Granville train disaster as mm. a great example of of live reporting. That report from Nigel Blunden that day, which was through a football broadcast on a Saturday afternoon, I remember it vividly because I was working that day, yeah. his description of Stuart Diver being... Unbelievable. Uh, ...was yeah. and is forever etched in my mind as one of those great word picture deliveries. Yeah, yeah I could hear Nigel, who's a you know tough sort of bloke, and he was, he was tearing up in it and... Uh, and the adrenaline was talking, and it's, it is a fantastic. And I don't know if people who are new to the business listen to this sort of stuff, but if if you can ever let sometimes the adrenaline do the talking, switch out of reporter mode. So every now and then, switch out of it on the big moments and let the magic take over. And and he he did. He let the magic take over that day. And and you know, a, a human being standing there watching a rescue of another human being who everyone thought was dead. Uh, was translated all over the airways all around the world, and it was an amazing thing. How difficult is that to do in that situation to allow the right level of emotion to come through but also have that professional delivery? You know, with everyone in, in radio or coming through radio talks about light and shade and all of those things that yeah. are important, but when you're confronted with it at that time, you got one shot at this. How important is it to try and keep composed but yet still have that human element to it? Well, we're, we're not going for perfection. I mean, we're going for take the moment to the, to the, to the listener. Um, sports broadcasters do it every day. I mean, Andrew Moore, who's someone I have great regard for and probably one of the finest broadcasters of his era, sports broadcasters and, and, and news broadcasters. I mean, Andrew didn't do a heap of news because he was gifted enough to go off and call sport at an early age. But to be able to, you know, show the glee of, he's got him, he's out, you know, oh, my God, he's over. Those, those things are incredible. And those guys do it like that all the time. They're, they're not they, – they're not trained. They sit in the shower practicing how they're going to call the 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 field goal kicked in with three seconds to go. They don't sit there. How do you how do you call you know Shane Warne breaking the world record or they don't practice that. I mean they you know some of them it just do. comes. They just but but these guys in this class you know people people like Andrew people like Jim Maxwell, Ray Hadley, um, they 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 just it just comes and and I think. John Brennan, John Brennan, you know, used to say a lot of things to me, but one of the things that really stood out is that you're best when you're you. You're best when you're you. And, um, and he used to say, and he'd grab you, he'd grab you on the shoulder, and he'd kind of shake you. You're best when you're you, and he'd shake you when he'd say the word you. And, and it actually was true. I was best when I was me. Andrew is best when he's he. Hadley's best when he's he. And, and, you know, you go through it all. It, it's so, be you every now and then. And I know the people, we're talking to people maybe about the news, but there are some times 
I gave this reporter to, uh, advice to a reporter the other day who was covering, you know, a huge event, and I, I said to her, um, I want to know what it's like being an Australian standing there when this happens. So I, I don't want you to throw me with boring facts about things and little tidbits. I want you to tell me what it's like being an Australian being there because you're going to take us there. And they did it. It was fantastic. And be you, and you're best when you're you. Michael Hutchins. His death, 1997. Again, it came in that wow. short sequence okay. of time, yeah. okay? We're going Princess Diana, uh, well, actually Threadbow, Princess Diana, Michael Hutchins, <laughs> all in a, a, a three- or four-month period. Wow. What, you get a good memory. Oh, I do yeah. have a good memory because, again, I was there. I was reporting on cricket that day when you rang through. And Michael Hutchins is dead. I've got to I've put me to air. Oh, um, oh can't, we can't get glee out of people dying. But okay, I, I get. You, I get know, you know, it, yeah. it, and it became a world exclusive. What? What's it? CNN is quoting Macquarie Radio as the source of the death of Michael Hutchins. That's Jason right. Morrison, twenty four years old on the scene. My goodness! Wow. Yeah, that was that was that was big. You know, the, my great regret with that night, and I, I, I was a big. That was a, in a new sense, a big get. Oh, but, mate, but, but not know, much bigger. I tell you what, I how I screwed it up. I screwed it up because I forgot that the guy's father is listening. The guy's relatives are listening, and I didn't say who it was, but I said enough that anyone knew. Yes, I mean we all know the the, the dark arts of saying it, but not saying it. I didn't say Michael Hutchins was dead. I a leading Australian rock star staying at the uh, due to performing yes. a concert this week, you know. I mean it was who else was it gonna be? Kylie Minogue, you know. Mm. I mean it was it was it was huge. And um I don't know if Kill Hutchins is still alive. I haven't spoken to him for years, but um I always I have enormous regret over how I handled that, that day because I broke the news to a bloke that his son had died, and I didn't really care enough about it. I cared more about, about the, the story, about the thing. Um, the, I mean, now that I've told you that there is a good, there's a good backstory to how we found out about it. But someone who worked at the station got a tip from someone who worked at the hotel that this oh. had happened, and I was living at Manly at the time. I was renting at Manly, I had to drive to the. It's now called the Intercontinental at. Double Bay, I don't know what it was. It's the Ritz Carlton. Ritz, 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 that's right, yeah. And I, I drove there expecting to get there and there'd be photographers galore. I got there, there wasn't a soul. There was a white van there, which I knew was what they used to call the government contractors, and it was Manning's, the funeral home, that was basically there to remove the poor bugger's body, and that was all that was there. And so I went up into the hotel and I, of course, used the terrible skills of lying to pretend that I was somehow involved. Oh, mate, I'm just here for, just with the people downstairs just to go up to the room, you know, and they, they basically took me up and I saw that it – so I knew who it was before anyone knew who it was really and, um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big story. So the young Buck reporter who was just after the story – is different now to the guy that's got a bit oh, more yeah. experience in terms well, got, of okay. I've got, what, what, I've got three kids now, you know. Oh, you no. kind, of, kind of, but you get a lot. More how would you? Now. How would you have handled it differently? Not to get the story because then you would have lost the story. I'm trying to get inside young Jason's head as opposed to the guy oh. who's sitting with me now. That sort of is oh. thinking about who's it got buyer's regret twenty years later. Yeah. yeah um, 
never thought about it. Should have given me a day's notice. I could have come up with a useful. I don't know. I just always think I think badly of my behaviour that day because a, a man found out his son had died over the airwaves. Could you imagine it? You know, it'd just be. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> We've spoken a lot about what you've done as as a reporter, and then your, I guess, ultimate goal to be a presenter on radio and you, you mentioned there about losing the I guess the quest or the thirst for the, the, the story and wanting to go into other areas. Did you feel as though you had enough behind you to go into the talk back presenting role? Because that's something if you're on a, a crime round or if you're on a court round, your primary focus is that or if you're in politics or whatever. I guess part of, a, of being a, a news journo is the fact that you're going to be thrust into any story in any given situation. But you've still got to be confident enough to be able to handle Doris talking about the the, the rise in the, the, the pension or you've got to be able to talk about state politics or you've got to be able to talk about... You need to know a little bit about everything, sport. Don't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah. when did you think, right, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to be able to do it? Does that come back to the, the, the years and years of, of listening to other professionals and how they've handled the situations? Yeah, the listening thing taught me a lot. You know, you learn little tricks from people and little ways of, of of covering your inadequacies and whatever else. When I started doing it, 2GB put me on the air when I was 26. Um, so whatever year that was, mid-90s. And they, it was too young and they knew it was too young, so they lied about my age. So when they put out a press release... I was 26, and they said, and 30-year-old news reporter Jason Morrison joins the lineup on the Sundown Rundown or something, whatever it was, which was the drive time show, which was like a just a wrap-up of the day's news. Yeah. And they lied about my age, and of course I knew why they did it because you couldn't tell people you had a 20-something-year-old on a station that's audience was small anyway and predominantly well over 55. Yeah. So... <laughs> they they lied about it, but I um I, I was I used to always think the same thing you're saying. How do you how can I relate in any way to people who've you know I'm talking to people who had been part of a generation that had fought to defend Australia, had 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 some of them had been born prior to the existence of radio, um, and they're now listening to someone who's probably younger than their children tell about the world should be. Um, it's a hard thing to come to terms with. I wasn't hugely successful at it. I'll say at first. I um, and I, I I lost my job at Two GB just before just before ninety nine. Ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that'd be probably you right. probably did too. Then everyone lost their job <laughs> at ninety nine from Two GB. Well, I lost my job twice at Two GB. I lost it in ninety six through the uh, the great newsroom closure, and then ninety nine again for yeah. going in a, another direction for whatever reason, and I think you were part of both those stinks. <laughs> did, did I just sack you? Uh, I didn't sack you, did I? Uh, no, you didn't sack no, me. Okay, no, okay, no, I'm no, just no. checking. No, no. I have lost I think, track of I that. Think the, uh, I think the work mill run dry at that particular oh, yeah, point. Okay. Um, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the, the – where were we? <laughs> yeah, no, we were just momentarily distracted <laughs> here. Um, yeah, so, so around that time of – of 99, you sort of lost the job at 2G, oh, yeah. 2GB. So okay. that was your first foray into talkback. And into I talk went back. to 2SM. And 2SM had just been taken over by Bill Corrales. 
I always respect the fact that he gave me a job when there weren't any jobs. I mm. tried to get a job everywhere, and I'd, I'd been such a thorn in the side of 2UE for so long that I'm sure they should. I mean, if I think back on it, I arrogantly say they should have hired me, but they hated me so much yeah. they didn't hire me. And so I had nowhere really to go, um, and I, was, I wasn't going to go to the ABC. I was just – I never – I actually made a decision early in my life I wasn't going to do that, and – I just we'll get to that if you want later, but I, I just thought I got to go to somewhere that that earns its keep. So I went and tried to got a job at uh, the FM stations that had kind of thought we don't need guys like you, news guys, and Bill Corrales and gave me a job. And I was at Two SM for eighteen months. We had next to no listeners, um, but I did every day a four-hour talk show with very few talkback callers. And, my God, it taught me something. It taught me something. You've got to be able to talk without people ringing and and stay interesting and stay whatever. I don't know if I did stay interesting. How did you do that? Nervous energy. Um, Andrew Moore and I were both there at the time, and Andrew had the same problem. You know, we, we, we both worked at pretty good stations, and then suddenly we're working at a station that really didn't have much, other than an owner who believed in us, you know, and Bill did. Um, I had responsibilities in the newsroom. I had to run it. And do the drive time show, and it was good. It was I actually as much as everyone kind of jokes about it and whatever else. I, I I learned a lot there, and I learned a lot about me. And I came out of there as actually a quite well rounded broadcaster because I'd learned that you, you can't be a fake when there's no one there. You can't be a phony when there is. It's only you. And the only things that worked were being me, and it and it and it worked. I met my wife there. Um, you know, it, it was. It's good. I mean, uh, you know, would I want to work there again? Probably not. But uh, and uh, I don't know. Bill, for some reason, ended up hating me. <laughs> but that's, I think that's I think that happens. I think that's part of the course. But, you know. But then again, I see. I have respect for what he's done. A lot yes. of people don't. I have respect for the fact that this bloke stayed a privateer in an industry that's taken over by superannuation funds. Now, I mean, the, the super funds own radio stations now, not small businessmen. And Bill, whilst a big businessman, is a small businessman. He runs it like it's his own shop and. You know, mightn't be my cup of tea, but it, hey, people get paid and that still exists and it's against the odds. You, if I'd said to you back in 2001 that 2SM would still be doing talk programming in 15 years' time, would anyone have believed me? And it still is. And it has, you know, one of the greatest broadcasters Australia's ever had on air, and that's laws. So, you know, they're doing something right. You talk about people deriding 2SM. Well, you didn't fire me from 2GB. You did hire me there to work there for a, a short period of time. Um, it was also in that newsroom that your talent spotting got a whole lot of people that have gone on to great things to actually work in that newsroom. We're talking Paul Murray, you got to, to work there. Oh, yeah. uh, Katrina Blowers. <laughs> you know, you think about Derek Peterson and, and, and just so many others that came through that particular newsroom at that time. We we had, when I say we, I was working there. It was just I, I had David Spears to the list. He didn't work at 2SM, <clears> but I added him to the 2GB list because <clears> whilst David was the afternoon newsreader on weekends and I thought he had a lot of capabilities and we made him a state reporter at 2GB and he went far. I think he's got a TV job or something now. Yeah, he? he's not bad at <laughs> so, what he does. Um, but, yeah, and is a, a really decent bloke who's gifted as well. Um, he... You know, we had we had an amazing team, and and I I could have done better if I'd had more money because I there just we Paul Murray is probably one of the one of the 
you know, I mean, I'd say rising stars that I've been involved in. Uh, he, he was, right, he was born better than me. <laughs> he is a very, very gifted bloke, and and he, he's he's much better at the broadcasting craft um, than than anyone of his age I have ever met. However, and Paul and I differ on this point. I think he is far better television guy than he is a radio guy. And that's actually a huge compliment for me because I normally think the other way around. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But that's a huge compliment for someone who can talk to a television camera. Um, you know, Clive Robertson had that skill. Talk to a television camera and make it look like there's nothing between you and it, can convey and argue his point and whatever else. Paul's got that gift and he he's really good at it. And um, and I think, I think actually, well, I think back on radio, I'm not saying anything here I've not said to him, he suffered the same problem I had when I first started in radio is that we're all probably a bit too young and a bit too inexperienced to be doing the talk show and it just needed a bit more time in the wilderness. It would have really probably helped him to have a year at 2SM, you know, before he did it. And uh, Does that get, give you satisfaction that you're able to see? And I'm, I'm sure you sort of do it in the in the TV space now where finding young immense, people and, immense satisfaction. And, yep. and guiding them and having people that, in this day and age where the, the younger people are often criticised for not being able to take criticism, to have a select few that are able to just sit down and genuinely listen to what you have to say and, and to be able to nurture them, what feeling does that give you? It's a lot my little alumni. You know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't, didn't have a university class I graduated with. I went through an era of radio and these are people I graduated with and they're great. They're really good. I mean, they most of them have far eclipsed anything I've done, and it's it's incredible to you know. Look, it doesn't take a lot of talent to give someone a break, uh, but it it does to recognise sometimes that they've got you know, they've got these these things. And Paul, you know, some someone like Paul Katrina is another good example. Um, you raise uh, Katrina, um, but there you know, there's even guys I work with now that I've sort of. I, Think you're taken from obscurity, and you say you've got a bit of this. And uh, John Brennan made a career out of it, and he's he's seen as the the baptizer of more radio greats than anyone else. And you know, uh, gosh, I'd love to be, <laughs> I'd love that to be my future. I mean, that'd be great. The move into TV happened around that two SM time, or just before that. You'd sort of always sort of done some casual stuff at, at Channel Ten and, and Weekend Chief of Staff and all of that kind of thing. Learning a new, entirely new skill or, or even language. How do you go about that and, and sort of why, what sparked your interest in doing it in the first place? Is it oh, the I was fact that you were frustrated with yeah. what I was doing and it was a great chance to do something else? And I loved it. Channel 10 was a great joint to work. Um, it's, it was always the number three station. Um, it didn't have the resources and all the money. You like but, picking an underdog, don't yeah, you? Yeah, my word. I, it's funny. I'm glad you said that because I, I think that's. Anyone can do well on the number one station. That's no, that's that's not. No, that's not. That's know. not right. Actually, that's 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 a cheap thing to say. But I mean, it's. I don't mean it. But Literally. there is there is a bit of that. Yeah. You know, you can when you, you know, and and I'm not. This is no criticism of anyone. But if you, you know, I've worked on the Alan Jones station, and I filled in for Jones's program for months and months and months when he was crook, and you know, I had a bigger listing audience than anyone on the dial when I did it. And the ratings reinforce that. And, you know, does that mean I'm as great as Alan Jones? No. no. It just means that I'm part of the momentum. And, you know, 
uh, and I mean, if you go and work for a joint that's struggling a bit, it's, you get to put your skills on on the line, and um, you know, you get to show how good you are. And I think there's a bit of that. Uh, I, I when I went back to Two GB and it was number one, there was a, a pretty awful kind of arrogance about where number one around the joint, and and I always kept wanting to say to people, I worked here when it was shit, and we did better stuff than this. It's a different vibe, isn't and it? I'm talking about news. I'm not yeah. talking about it on air because no. the guys on the air weren't magicians. But the the you know I worked here when it was really bad, and we did better than this. So lose your arrogance. You know you got no right to have it. Um, you know people. It's sort of funny. I think that it almost should be a rule that you know if you're going to work in radio, you must start at a really crap station because you learn a lot. Yeah, uh, you, you'll never learn at the top joint. You never learn, and. Uh, I was lucky I had a few of those, and and I look back with – I worked at 2UE when it was at the top of its game. I lasted nine months. I couldn't stand it. And it wasn't it wasn't really the people. It was me. I just couldn't stand it. I thought, uh, you know, it didn't feel like a fight. Yeah. That was the exact word I was, I was going to use. What is it about being in the most successful part or most successful – organisations that you lose a bit of that edge, a little bit of that fight, a bit of that determination to, I guess, knock the other joint off. You, like, get, you get fat and lazy is what you get because you, you know that, you know, you just do. When you're, when you're at the big joint and you've got the momentum of everything, you you know that it's going to come your way. Um, and it's so helpful. My, my wife, is uh, Heidi, is a fantastic example of this. Now, she worked at 2UE when it was the, the deadbeat station and 2GB was the top of the game and she left, she went 2SM, 2UE, 2GB and 2GB was at the top of the game. We actually worked together, although not together together, but we worked in the same mm. joint at the same time. And I think she loved 2GB, 2UE far more than 2GB because it was a fight. It was an arm wrestle every day and and you you're on the line and you were tested every day, whereas you might not have had that same experience at the other place. I mean... From my own experience, I worked at the the crap two GB and also the the good two GB. And uh, th- those days in the in the in the mid nineties were just so exciting. I don't know whether it was the enthusiasm on my point of view because I was I was much younger at that stage, but or I just loved that like you the fact that we were the the underdog, we're operating on the the smell of an oily rag, yet we got stuff done. Yeah, and that was uh, to me. I still look back in, on those days, and I, I never thought that I'd become a, one of those guys that you know back in my day. But that was as exciting as a place as I'd ever worked. And in terms of two GB, just being down the, the totem pole when with the ratings. And the thing that always sort of annoyed me the most is, uh, particularly in the two GB good days, was the amount of joy that people in the newsroom got out of the ratings. I mean, really, you're a small cog in a big yeah. wheel, and the, the the excitement about about that really kind of irked me a little bit, and it took the gloss off it. Can I tell you a story? You mentioned ratings. Um, I never got very into the ratings thing, and I was never one to run around and say I'm number this or number that, and I've got this many thousand. It was John Pierce who we mentioned earlier, um, in the class of the kind of greats of Australian radio. He's never really he never really got the mantle that he deserved in his lifetime, but I look at him as being one of these kind of blokes. He was a pioneer. And Pierce said to me, 
Well, if they're waiting, if they're, they're rating 20%, that means 80% of people aren't listening to them. Imagine if you had a party and you had 100 friends and only 20 of them showed up and think you were a dead shit. And I, I really see thought, that is amazing. And so, you know, when I'm on drive time at 2GB and I'm getting 12% and I'm on top of the world, I'm thinking, mate, 12%. You're 12 Jesus, out of 100. There's a lot of people that aren't listening to you, mate. And, and I think that, can I tell you, I think that was the difference between me and, 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 the kind of stardom mentality is because the stardom mentality says that's an amazing number. And I look at it and go, this feels still pretty shit. Okay, so you get to the point where you're given the opportunity to, I know we're fast-forwarding a little bit here, but the opportunity to be a presenter on, on 2GB, on the on the drive shift. What's that like? I mean, for, for me, looking at the, the, the outside, looking in, the drive shift is the shift where things happen. And you're a guy that loves to break news. Combining those great two loves of yours, the quest for the story and also the live element of presenting a show and putting it all together, what was that like? Well, do you know the irony is I did less of that when I was on drive at 2GB because I I thought at the time I was up against on the dial. I had Richard Glover on 2BL. I had... John Stanley on TUE, me on 2GB, and Hamish and Andy on Today FM, who just shout over everyone. I mean, yes. like, I, I never got to number one on Drive. I got to number two. I always say I proudly got to number two. Oh, do you know what? If you, if you were Andy. working at an FM station, or if the 2GB was uh, publicising it right, you'd be number, number one, one AM, number one you know, AM. and then, you know. I was number one AM. Oh, yeah. God. It, it, it became, because everyone else was number one on the, di- on the mm. station except me. I was number two. And it didn't matter if I'd go up three points. Hamish and Andy would go up three points. It was like it was just, you know, and... So I never got to the top, and I always think I, I, I often joke with Ben Ford and well, mate, you'll do well because you haven't got Hamish and Andy in front of you, mm. and, and, and I think he is number one. So it's it's one of those funny things. But I went on and I thought across the dial, Stanley was doing news, and he was doing it his way. Uh, Richard Glover was doing news, and I thought, no, I'm going to do opinion. I'm just going to do opinion, what I think about this, what I think about it, which is kind of an arrogant thing to yeah. do. But I thought, no, I'm going to do it because it's different. And Philip Clark had been doing it before me, and Philip had been doing a kind of news and views sort of mix. And I thought, Jones does opinion, Hadley does opinion, Chris Smith did a lot of news in the afternoon, and I came off the back of him, and I thought, no, no, I'll just do opinion. I'll just do opinion because I think, so I'd, I'd go and find stories. I, I became kind of like a campaigner on stories. I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't concocted. I'd go and find things that I thought were really important, and I'd bloody well fight for them on the air. And I just did it and did it and did it and did it. And so you end up being thrown into the corner of you know the shock jock or the whatever. It was none of that. It was actually genuinely things I thought were important and still do today. And I'd go and go to war with the enemies of it, and I'd do it. And I kind of thought that. You know, I was sort of leading this group of people around who agreed with me, um, who wanted to hear that battle had, and the people who hated my point of view wanted to hear me get beaten up. And so we just ran around and did that for a few hours, and and I loved it. It's In fact, one of the dumbest things I ever did was leave it because I loved it, and I'd do it. I'd say I'd do it in a flash. I, I have changed a bit, not my attitudes, but just in what's important to me, now and we had a lot of security issues when I was on there because I went for I went for 
targets. Yes. I mean, and I went after, you know, the growth of radical Islam in Australia, and you don't make a lot of friends doing that. I took on some, some. I mean, I actually look at it as one of my few courageous moments in doing these sorts of things when no one else was talking about it. What's that like dealing with like things that come your way? Well, having that are, the police oh, sit outside your house and and having uh, death threats, having death threats constantly, and um, having to yeah, not good, not good, not good at all. Having to change the number plates, having to uh, move home. <laughs> yeah, these things happen. I mean, this is what this is what it's like. So when I hear people shit can Alan Jones and Hadley and whatever else and think they're just doing it for shock value. These guys, yeah, I get paid well and whatever else, but they also, it has a huge impact on your life. And, you know, I now have little children. I've got a good life and I don't have a police escort and I don't have to, we've still got all the gear at home, the duress systems, but, you know, we don't have that same issue anymore. I mean, I won't go into the details of it because I, no. it makes me upset and I also don't want to give the people responsible for, you know, essentially terrorising us, uh, you know. And by the way, they didn't terrorise because I was wrong and I was a bigot or whatever. They, they did it because that's the kind of people we were dealing with and that's the kind of thing I was talking about. The way of life in Australia, you should be able to have free and open discussion and you shouldn't have to have the fear of someone doing something brutal and awful to you and uh, we had to make you know, take precautions in our lives because of it. And my wife doesn't deserve that, nor do the kids, nor do my neighbours and my family. And I've often said, I, you know, if I went and did it again, I'd probably I'd do the same thing. So it's probably best I don't do it. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, and we won't go too far into it, as you sort of said, but turning up to work every day with that kind of, Fear on your on your left shoulder if you peered over it a, a, a little bit. You mentioned being courageous there. Well, mate, look, I haven't. You know, I'm I'm a forty almost five forty five year old bloke soon. Probably by the time you put this up online, I'll be forty five. Um, I've been a part of a generation that's never really had to fight for very much. I mean, the you know, my dad's generation had a war in it. We had a war, but it wasn't like the wars of the past. No. It was, it's been carried out by professional soldiers. But we have an enemy, and we have an enemy that wants to destroy our way of life, and it shits me to no end that there are not enough courageous people prepared to stand and take a position on it. And, you know, words, people are, oh, you're a big hero, you've got a big mouth, you say all these things. No, 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 I, I took on the people who lacked the balls to stand up and, and, and say, I, I got annoyed with the political leadership. I got frustrated with the uh, with the establishment and the public service that kind of made excuses for all these things going on in our society that were changing the way we were, that made it hard for us. I mean, I ask you at your age, yeah, I'm on my hobby horse now, Yeah, at your age, can you speak as comfortably as you could 10 years ago or 10 years before that? Not at all, not without fear. And and what what the hell have we done to this country that that's the way this this is, and I, you know, we talked about, you mentioned earlier the older people that used to read me on the radio, and I used to oh, I think to myself, and I mean, this lady, this lady worked through it, lived through an era when she had to fight to protect this country from an invading force, and here, here is my generation, and probably my parents as well, that never had any of those kind of fears in their life because these people were in the hard yards, and here we are just watching a lot of it go up in smoke and not prepared to do anything about it, and I couldn't do it. And I thought you have you have an amazing weapon here in being a part of the broadcast industry and 
and a, and a big audience and a whole lot of frustrated people who think similarly to you, you know, take a position, take a stand. And, you know, again, I say that's why I have so much regard for the courage of people like Alan and, and Hadley and others that they mightn't be your cup of tea, but acknowledge that they are prepared to confront things that most people dance around. And I wanted to be one of those people. And I, well, I think I was. And then I left and went to TUE. <laughs> what, um, what, when we'll touch on that in a sec, but what is it about the, the vocal minority and why are they given a louder and louder voice these days when compared to the silent majority? Is it a lack of well, complete leadership yeah, from, from, yes. uh, from our politicians? Yes, that, is. That is, is that where it begins and ends? Or is it it's not up to the, the everyday folk because ultimately they're electing a, a party or a, or a person to, to lead them from what is an increasing threat that well, see, is that okay. is driven by like a, a um uh, like I said a, a vocal minority. You you get elected in Australia by being popular, and there's your problem straight away. You get elected by being popular. You be elected get elected by being as many things to as many people as possible, and having you know it's essentially a divided country. There's you know this many people think left, this many people think right, and then we we fight out of a few people in the middle, and that's who governs the country. Mm. So. You're actually, you know, and in, in the middle is a kind of view of moderation and the people in the middle that are the, the battleground, are the, the moderate thinking types, the people who would rather not offend or rather not confront or rather would, you know, uh, just talk about prettier things in their lives and not worry about, you know, oh, can't we focus on the good things and that kind of stuff. That's all good. You can have that point of view, but that, that, that's just breeding mediocre people in politics. And, and I started to think that my trajectory here was politics because I'd started to think, you know, that that I keep going back to thinking, you know, you, you benefited from a, a great life in a great country um, because people sacrifice things to give you all of that and what are you doing, mate? You're sitting around, you're watching it go in a direction that you know and everybody knows is wrong. And if you don't know it's wrong, have a look around you. There are a lot of problems here. And... I don't know how you can do that and not take action. And so I used the great privilege that 2GB gave me and it was in consultation with them too. I mean, I said, I'm going to be this kind of person. I didn't wake up and say, right, I've got the transmitter for four hours. Right, let me bring down the country. I said, I I want to fight to keep Australia great. I I, I said, Mm. this is Donald Trump-like now, but that's what my thing. I wanted to fight to keep it the great, happy, peaceful, cohesive country that it was where you could define what Australian culture was. You could comfortably have a discussion about things. I mean, you couldn't put Paul Hogan on television in 2017. Nope. People would think he was a racist, bigot, xenophobe, homophobe, insertophobe. Mm. You know, there you couldn't do that. You, you couldn't run Kingswood Country today. It wouldn't air. Uh, you'd probably struggle to play Hello, Hello on television these days because mm. it would be considered racist and bigoted. It, it is just so... Um, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? In an era that the media is getting more diverse and, 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 and wider, you know, there, I mean, you, 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 you can have more listeners than TUE with this podcast. But, <laughs> but you know... You, Give it a couple of weeks, I yeah, think we will. But, but you know what I mean? Like, yes. you know, I mean, you have the power to make this a huge, broad thing. Really simply, we've made it... We're, we're, so the media's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and yet 
permissible topics is getting narrower and narrower. And this is a free country? Mm. It's not that free. I can tell you there's a lot of freedoms, but it's not that free. And and if you think I'm full of crap, sit down and just ask you that question about versus 10 years ago versus five years ago. How much more relaxed are you about what can comfortably be discussed in in uh, in common company and let alone on broadcast airwaves? Let's now talk about that move to, to UE. Yeah. And was it an opportunity at the time that you saw too great to pass up? We sort of discussed before we came on the fact that it was painted in the picture as uh, of you taking on Alan Jones. That was never the case for you, was it? <laughs> never, no. It was – look, I was – I was I was jack of things. I was probably jack of – You wanted to go back to being the underdog? I, no, no, no. I was actually – I just – we had an ugly year. We'd had – I got married. Yep. That was a good bit. We started to have – um, security issues, which frighten the crap out of me. Really, yep. you, you know, like, I mean, people can read between the lines what I'm talking about here. Oh, 100%. But we, we had all those things going on. And, and I actually got to the point where I'd say, what, what's the point of all this? You know, and I, and I, I, what I probably should have done is taken two months holiday and it would have been fine. I'd probably still be there today. But I didn't take too much holidays. I, I you don't took, like holidays, mate. I took a trip across the Harbour Bridge and went to a radio station. <laughs> and I worked with a nice bloke. I worked with, with Peter Brennan, who's a fantastic and decent man, who had a great idea for the station. And the only trouble is he was about the only one that had the idea. I got there and uh, they almost wanted me not to be what I was. And uh, How hard was that for you? It was impossible. So I'd essentially left a joint where – They'd said, you know, go on air and do a talk show. So I'd been told to be a music desk jockey, go on air and play any record you want. I mean, that was what I was allowed to do at 2GB. There was no control. No one comes in and says, right, here's your topic for today and here's your view. It was go and Make do good radio. as you want, you know, yeah. obey the law. It was basically the, dis- yeah. the directions, obey the law, play the ads and yeah. and time out for the news. And, and, that, and I went from – there to a place that said, oh, we want to make you a bit lighter and a bit fluffier and a bit whatever else. And they had this program director who, who came from his state who wanted me to do celebrity interviews. Um, it's unbelievable. And and I was, you know, and anyone who's ever worked breakfast will will know that, that you know, it screws you up anyway. Your whole body, you know, you, you, you get tired, you lose you lose a bit of your judgment. I mean, this you know, again, it's why I have so much regard for Jones is because he's done it for so long and he's still managed to to stay as normal as Alan can ever be with a job that's like his. I mean, he actually is behind the scenes a very regular normal bloke. And and he and, – and so I had – I wasn't coping with the not enough sleep thing. Um well, that's the thing is, I mean, as I sort of said a few times bad, before, it it's like you, you, you're not getting up early. You are getting up in the middle of the night. And to do that for an, a, a long period of time, like you say, you do, and having sort of done it for six or eight years, breakfast news, you become not the person that you want to be because it, it, it just has that detrimental effect on your life. It's, it's, it's sleep deprivation, they spent, which they use for torture. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they spent five years trying to hire me, and when they got me, they wanted to change me. And I thought it was really odd. And it wasn't for the money. It's funny. It's, people have often said, oh, you went for the money. 
money was good. Someone wrote an article about it and put our salaries in the paper, and they actually were right. So, you know, if you want to Google it, you can find out what I earn. But the the, the, the joke of it is it was, it was less than I got at 2GB. So I left. This is for crass, less money. This is crass talking about money. But I, mm. I'm just saying, I'm making the point that yes. it wasn't for money. And it, I'm not even sure with hindsight it was about opportunity. It was just I was so sick of the other joint because I, I was just flogged. I was exhausted. And, and it was just a... It was a change of scenery, and it was a bad change of scenery, and I ended up essentially getting sacked from the worst joint in town. So, so I'd gone from being number two behind Hamish and Andy, which I always thought was number one, yes. to being sacked from the worst joint in town. I mean, when you think about it now and being a, a radio guy that you are, the mentality of the TUE of that time was – we want to compete with 2GB, but we're going to be different but the same. It was a weird sort of way of – and then we're just like, well, we're going after the, the younger talkback audience with yourself and, and Paul was in, I think, at that stage. They, they didn't and, have a clue what they and, wanted and to do. It, like, like, I guess, the, the running joke back in the, the, the bad old 2GB days was that the lineup was never the same year to year and – to UE were promising that, that they were going to, you know, pick and stick, and they didn't. Mate, I can tell you, the lineup when I started there was me, Breakfast, Oldfield on mornings, who I actually thought could have gone places. He's good. Um, Michael Smith in afternoons, who's a huge talent and should still be on air. Paul Murray, who, of course, has shown himself to, to be, you know, a bloke of some capability as well. And... Then there were other guys, and that changed a bit at night. But you know, it kind of, you know, Stuart Stuart was at night, Bocking was at yep. night, and whatever. And so we had this, we kind of had this sort of half-pregnant approach to talk radio. And they wanted to do conservative talk radio. I mean, I'm a conservative kind of bloke. I, yep. I, I, I look at the world through a prism of, you know, that's 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 from where my values came from and whatever else. And they've got, they're owned by Fairfax that hates conservatism. <laughs> you know, it thinks it's just the worst thing on the planet. And then you've got this this strange thing happening where uh, then David said some hot things on the air and rather than backing him, they got rid of him. Michael said some hot things on the air that should have been backed. They got rid of him. So... So, but the, the, the great things the about those thing things is, is, is what you want in a place like that to get your broadcasters to have some notoriety as as, as people that are, are outspoken and willing to tackle the big issues. Or honest. Yeah, yeah, honest. Uh, or honest. Uh, to tackle the, the, the issues of, of the day, which gets you great publicity, yeah. but yet you want to run a mile from that. Yeah, to me, that whole period of 2UE, it must have been weird as a guy that, knew radio so well to be a part of it on the inside. It was weird being someone who had been backed all the way to the hilt at the other station, and that 2GB backed me every time backed me. The only time they got the shits with me is when I didn't play the ads, which was unprofessionalism on my behalf. Yeah. If I dropped commercials, they didn't back me on that. No. But they backed me on everything else I did because they knew I was coming up from the right spot and that it was learned and researched and whatever else. It wasn't, you know, just shoot from the hip. Um and I've gone from that to a place that kind of – it almost – I mean, I don't think it, but it would almost be like, you know, you, you got hired to do damage to the other joint. It didn't do any damage to the other joint because they just replaced me and another guy went on and did well, and he's still doing well. 
he's a good bloke. Fordham's a good bloke. Because when I got the wristle from TUE. You got what you want. He, he gave me a job. My rival gave me a job. That's a, that's a class act. That is a class act. And I can, I can, I can never forget that because, you know, you've been sacked and a lot of people listening to this have been sacked. And a weird thing happens. You go from being someone who's well known around the office to no one talks to you. You, you maybe get a few phone calls after it happens. All these days, it's not even that you get a text message mm. and then you never hear from anyone again. And he did. And he, he, he helped me keep my name up in lights, which I know sounds pathetic, but when you, when you're emotionally down on your luck, and I was for a while, um, he helped me feel like I still mattered, and it was—I'll never forgive that, forget that. That was that—that that was a, a tremendously decent thing to do, and and he owed me really nothing other than the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a good bloke there, and and I, I like seeing him have success. And I listen to it and I get the shits because I think I should be doing it too. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we'll sort of wrap it up in terms of the 2UE thing in a sec, but you were hired to do breakfast. You got a partial run at it. Then they decided that they were going to go in a different direction with it and put you in, in drive. Like, that must have just completely done your head in. I'm, I'm oh, sure. The, I'm sure. I'm sure. The, I'm sure the hours were uh, a pleasing adjustment, but the, like the fact that yeah. you got taken off the what is essentially the most prestigious part of a radio station, the the, yeah. the shift yeah. to to go and do something else, and Paul was moved into the Sydney Morning Herald office, mm. and there was just a whole lot of other reactionary decisions that were going on. Unbelievable. Yeah. Again, was it being on the inside? Is it hard not to get worked up and frustrated at these surreal. dumb decisions? It was surreal. You know, there was one day and people thought I was joking. I got on the intercom and it was coming out about five to nine and I said, who's on after nine? And and I, like, I was for real, like, who is it? I don't know who that person is in there. And they they were trialling out two people on the air after, mid, after nine o'clock. Mate, it was just like something I've never seen. And I felt so sorry for the staff of that era because a lot of them were long-termers. A lot of them were lifers at 2UE. They'd worked there for so long. They'd been there through the magic years of Laws and Jones and, you know, even some before that had, had been there and worked with Mike Carlton, who's, you know, I mean, Mike and I differ on a lot of things, but I admire his broadcasting ability. He's an amazing broadcaster. Uh, you know, he'd think I talk shit and I sometimes think he talk. He probably doesn't think about me at all, but, mm. but I admire his talents. And so they'd work with these, you know, incredible people that you could be so loyal to and whatever else. And then they started getting, you know, like chopping and changing every couple of weeks and they saw their station go from being reasonably good to being hideous. And there were some stages in bre- when, after my time in breakfast, that they were getting survey figures that sometimes were 1% in breakfast. Oh, it was just, it was shocking. And, 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 you know, like normal, they blame all the wrong people, you know, it's all, it's all the guys on the air sport. It's never the guy off the air. No. It's never the person made the decision. And uh, the thing that I look at, and of course now, you know, it doesn't have a newsroom. It barely exists anymore. It's sort of, it does, but it doesn't exist. You know, it's not what it's always been. And What's and that like for you, a proud sad. radio person that's, oh, that's listened to all their lives and, and, you know, like you said before, worked for the, the underdog 2GB, uh, worked for the top dog 2GB, had uh, spent... A bit of time there at at two UE trying to build an audience, 
for it to be decimated the way it has, and from a radio history point of view, the the rich history that it that it does have to be now relegated to what it is. There was a so, it's, it's almost an embarrassment. It is. There was a sign up in the foyer first time I went to work there in the nineties, and it said "To UE always at or near the top." always at or near the top, and it was true. Through its history, it had always been at or near the top. We'd have to finish the sentence. I mean, it's it's sad. It's a it's a great broadcasting station. It's I mean, they they called themselves the original for a while. They were the original station. Mm. Australia Day in 1926 or something, and they were the first on the dial. And and I, I think that's, you know, look, you can come on about history all the time, and history, mm. history should learn from it and whatever else. Um, I was honoured to be a breakfast announcer at TUE. I was honoured to do it. You'd been, you know, think of the people who had done it, um, Gary O'Callaghan, uh, Michael Carlton, um, Steve Price had a crack at it, you know. It I'll was, this, obviously. Oh, oh yeah. God, good, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, it's funny how I've blurred that out of my mind now. He, he's, he's, he's one of me now. He's yes. a 2GB guy. He's one of me now. So, yeah, no, of course, Alan. Um, I'm, I mean, you know, if there was a role of honour, I'm on that. I'm on that board. It's a pretty amazing thing, personally. I, I don't think of it much because the, nothing's gained out of thinking about it. But you think you know, 50, 50 years of broadcasting is probably a handful of people that are on that probably board? Probably five or six people that have done it, and I was one of it, and I did it for two years, and everyone since has done it for <laughs> about five minutes, except the blokes that are on it now who are apparently going all right. I don't listen. There's no offence to anyone. I drive past the building now, and I feel odd about it because where it used to be because I had – Bad experiences, mate. They they got rid of me the day before my now three year old was born. You know, that's a shit. Just act. doing things and doing things. It's isn't just it? a shit act. And yeah. and um, we're not here to talk about what happened behind closed doors there. But you know, there were behaviours that that I saw that I will never repeat in my managerial life. If we look at it from that point of view, it's been a really good learning experience for you. Yeah, it did. Yeah, I learned a lot from it. Um, and then I had three years out of radio, basically, and this is the third year. <laughs> so, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I've got this job now, which is amazing. I got to work for a while for, you know, the most successful businesswoman in Australian history, you know. Um, Gina Reinhart. I per- personally was- worked for her. It was amazing. Incredible. You know, uh, I've got a couple of kids now and life's good. And I... And, and I, you know, I've got three boys, and I'm. I hope to God they don't end up working in the broadcasting industry. <laughs> You'll be steering them in, they, a, in another direction. I mean, engineering or law or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Let, let, let's talk about that though. Like for the guy that was, you know, that news hungry, twenty four seven news guy, and now have that beautiful, and I sort of have it as well with with a young daughter. That that balance that kids bring to the table, that innocent nature that they that they have that. You might have had the the worst day in the world at work, but I don't care. Like you're the centre of their universe. What's that like for you? I mean, I know what it's like for me, but everybody has their different take on becoming a parent and being a parent. One thing I hope is that one day, because my son, because we listen and love the radio at our place, and you know he comes into the TV station and gets to meet all the people you see on TV. And he's on first name terms with Mark Ferguson, and he knows Samantha Armitage, and he knows the Cash Cow, and all the you know my four year old. He's a groupie, um, but he doesn't 
know that his dad used to do that stuff. And, you know, that, that I was proud of what I did. I loved being on the air. And it, it, I'd, I'd love to do it again one day. But, you know, I mean, I've got a fair few years to live, so it's not like I need to do it next month or next year or in five years. No. So I'd like one day for him to go. I mean, he, he looks at, you know... He's met Ben Ford. I mean, he can't believe it. You know, the guy that he hears coming out of the speaker. He, you know, so those things mattered to me, and I'd like one day for him to see all of them. To see that, you know, Dad was all right at that kind of stuff too once. Um, but if they don't, so what? Do you get more chance now to switch off than what you used to? You've got a very high-profile job. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I've got a few more people around me now that can, but. Are you able, able to sort of, uh, and you, you mentioned your wife Heidi, who's been in the game for a long time herself prior to having the, the kids, to have that someone in your life that gets it, that wasn't the other girlfriend that <laughs> ran a, a, a mile from it, that didn't understand how this great beast that we love and hate and this thing that we work in that sometimes it's hard to... Completely let go of. Yeah. To answer your question simply, no, I don't. I don't switch off. I still love it, and I'm still very much involved in it. But the whole thing, you know, that I I always come back to is that it's a fantastic job. I mean, I, I've got friends that work in banking who like it. I've got friends that you know have small businesses that own shops, and they'd spend as much time there as they need to do. And you know, I. I I don't like saying hard work because it's not. It actually isn't hard work. It's 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 not labour intensive. It's not labour intensive, so it's it's cheap to call it hard work. It's it's sometimes intense work. And the one thing with television that I don't cope well with is the three minutes to nine in the morning TV ratings that come out every day and tell me how well or badly I did yesterday, um, because I know our product's good. I know our product's getting better. I know our product will get even better and. I know it will be the best. but And you get the ratings figures and the ratings figures tell you one day is really great and they tell you the next day that one wasn't great. and that it, 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 it does scramble with your confidence a bit always, but, you know, that's that's the business. I tell you what, I think radio would be a very different game if the next morning you got into work and you thought you had a great show yesterday and it told you only 5% of people listened. Well, it would f- be a very different business. Don't get me started on that. The fact that we're still relying on people to fill out these crappy little diaries um, – Mate, it's when, fantastic when you're winning. It's I've never questioned the methodology when you're winning, but oh yeah, um, I used to look at it often, and and I'd say, how is it possible that according to this, there's only thirty thousand people listening? How is it possible? Yeah. And, but but apparently it is possible, and so rather than question it, you just put up with what's there. You live and die by it. Yeah. Um, we'll wrap things up in a sec, but before we go, some advice from you for anyone that's looking to get into. Media, radio, TV, print, whatever the case may be, you're in that position where people probably have the chance to, to write to you if they're that dead keen on, mm. on, on getting a, a foot in the door. What would you say to somebody now in 2017, which is a whole lot different when you and I sort of first started to break into this great industry of ours? It is different, but it's still the same. It's still a speaker in the corner. It's still the, the set of speakers in the car. It's still the same. And so it still needs the same level of application. It still needs the same understanding that that your job is to make magic. 
as well as tell the stories well, but tell them in a way that people will never forget. There's nothing more flattering than having people come up to you and say, I heard you do this and quote yourself back at you. <clears throat> and I, I have been quite honoured to have that happen a couple of times for different things. And, and that's when you go, tick, that I succeeded. Tick, that worked. Um, you know, which is not bad in an industry where you can't see the person at the other end and they find out who you are and they come over and say, I just want to tell you, I heard the day you did this. Yes. I heard your broadcast from this. I heard that time you said this, you know. Um, I was there with you that day when you were, you know, and they weren't. They were listening in their car, but they, that's how they – so listen to other people who are really good, and it's easier now, YouTube and, um, and SoundCloud and other things. I mean, I, I, I listen all the time. I listen to, you know, the BBC does it radio very, very well. People think it's boring. It's actually not. It's an amazing ideas factory. Listen to how they do it and the way they use sound. Use sound. Give a damn about it. I mean – I, I'm glad we're doing this in a noisy environment because if what I'm talking about is boring, people are going, what's that noise in the background? Where are they? They said they're at the Western. I wonder which bar they're at. You know, the acoustics matter. Um, nothing drives me more insane. Oh, geez, you hit a button now. Nothing drives me more insane than hearing people file studio-quality voice reports from inside cars and the field. Get out. Let people hear the traffic. Let them hear the jackhammers. Let them hear where you are. Bring the soundscape forward and use the sound. Make reference to it. And I think the university courses are shit, and I, I, and I think, and if any of them want to ring me and ask me why, I'd be happy to act as a consultant for them because they're making a pretty penny out of these kids, you know, taking money from them. And they're not work ready. And they're not work ready. And I think it's time that 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 um, that there was a bit of a look at that, you know that. We teach people in these courses what not to do as opposed to what to do. Um, and I see it with graduates too often that they are, they are primed up on how they wouldn't approach a story as opposed to how they would. Uh, journalism craft is not taught. You know, the, the skills of it, the tricks, in inverted commas, to... to getting information and how to get it. I'm not talking unethical behaviour. I'm talking about we, we don't mind teaching people all the tricks to sell cars to people, but we don't seem to think we just sell people to get information out of people. We, is that is that because of a generation? We've intellectualised something yes. that actually isn't. It's a very tradesman job, this. Yeah. You know, to, to tell a story. and You've got to be a born storyteller. I mean, I'd have aptitude tests before they even got in the door. All right, I want you to sit there for a minute. Tell me about this. And just see if they can do it because there aren't many storytellers coming through and it's not a path to get famous. It's, it's not the path to pick up a few thousand Twitter followers or followers yeah. on Instagram or whatever the case Mate, may it helps. be. I mean, look, I'm the last person to talk about it because I, I, I got a high-profile radio job out of it that paid a fortune. I got a TV regular shows on Sunrise every day, which... You know, man, I was well known in Adelaide and, you know, places I'd never been. I mean, you walk along, people would say, oh, I love you from Sunrise. Yeah. Thanks. Good, good. You know, I, I, that, I mean, that, that all came along and, and, you know, Paul Murray's got a national TV show now and Alan Jones is who he is and, you know, a lot of things come from it. But that's the 1%. The, the other 99% of, of us are just doing the job and, and doing it because they love working in the news business or the broadcasting business. And there's nothing I see I love more than seeing 
people who really, really, really love the business and spend their entire lives in it. And I, I won't be one of those people because I've been kicked out of it too many times. And, <laughs> but, but who've spent their entire life with it and they get a certificate from the broadcasting, you say 25 years in radio, 50 years in radio. I think that's a noble thing to do. It's a good job. You, you wake up each morning to entertain people, to bring a bit of happiness into people's lives. It's a great job. And remember that that's it. It's a privileged position. Not many jobs where you get that, where you, you're a paid performer and you get to do that and no one, you know. Every day's the yeah. same, but it's different. Yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. But if you're new to it, for God's sake, listen to people. And I'm not meaning like, listen to idiots like me telling stories about it. Listen to great people doing it and hear why they're, why they're great and and understand why they're great. And if you can't, talk to someone who can explain it to you. But some of the stuff is just so beige around the dial now. And and I almost want to ring up the kids and say, hey, can I can I give you some tips? But I have done that sometimes and they just think you're a weirdo, so I'm not going to bother. So for the people that are actually listening to this and are dead keen on a, on a career, who are those great ones now that they should be watching, that they should be listening to, that are the ones that they're going to learn more than if they spent or, or spent hours watching somebody different. Like where where are the, the, the lessons going to be learned from somebody that is currently uh, well, practising? Steve Blander is brilliant and works at Smooth, is it? Smooth, yeah. Um the ABC's got a lot of really good people, but not as many as it used to. Andrew Moore is brilliant. I mean, Andrew Moore's a sportscaster, but it's the same thing. It's 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 storytelling. It's story he's telling he's telling stories of what's going on. But he is an amazing storyteller of what's going on. He's, um, I think some of the ABC cricket callers are brilliant. They're good. They're good storytelling. I mean, it's a, it's the same thing. It's just mm. different topic. Um, Glenn Daniels, good, smooth. Oh, look, it'll get boring because I'm just going to be. It'll be the common denominator will be they're all older guys at your age. Um, I think the challenge is it's really easy to listen to good people now. Go online and listen to them and hear how they did it, and don't copy them, but take some of the magic of what they did and 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 relive it. And that's what I did, and it didn't hurt me. But you know. It, 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 I've never heard anyone say to me recently, I'm in radio because it's what I want to do for a career. They normally say, I'm in radio and I want to get into television. Or I'm in radio and I want to get into the Big Brother house. Or I'm in radio. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not the right way around. And, uh, and I, I sound like a hypocrite because here I am working at a television station. But radio has taught me to be capable of doing what I'm doing. But I didn't work in radio, so one day I'd get hired by a TV station. Mm. I think if you think that, go work on a TV station. There's plenty of jobs. Leave radio to the people who really want to make it happen. And realise in radio, it doesn't matter how good you get, the hours get worse. It is so true. It's just, it's, it's um, the, you know, if you're the best, and Clive Robertson, you know, he, he should be on air. And really the only place you'd put him there would be late nights, 
Or breakfast. <laughs> the two worst shifts of the day. Yes. You know, the best shifts but the yes. worst shifts. And, and, and you know, Clive is a gifted, brilliant broadcaster who really can't be put in two spots. And, you know, so the choice he has to make, do I come from what I'm doing now to go have a horrible life working yes. or do I, you know, and uh, and and have respect for people like Jones. You might like him or his style or whatever, but admire the bloke's ability and, and talents, and they are immense. That's I'll go on, mate. If you if you don't shut me up, I'll just keep going. <laughs> just say that's enough. Jason Morrison, thanks very much for on your job. Thank you. Very flattering, mate. Thank you. There he is, Jason Morrison from Channel 7. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Jason, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Jason Morrison AU. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the MediaMates Podcast. <laughs> Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.